All right, all right. I'll be honest. I think I'm a pretty intelligent, well-rounded human, but I have to up the ante for this week's guest, Stefan Svetkov, investor and founder of Realty Quant. He is an incredibly intelligent human. I feel like we in the investing world focus so much on the upside, but what about downside analysis? Join us as we dive into this and a slew of other metrics on data-driven investing. Thanks for listening. You're listening to the Real Estate of Things podcast. Welcome to the Real Estate of Things podcast. I'm your host, Dalton Elliott. Stefan Svetkov, founder of Realty Quant. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Dalton. I appreciate it. <laughs> Absolutely. So you're based in New York. You're a financial engineer. Uh, you're a multifamily investor. You are a busy man, my friend. So I think let's kick it off. Just tell us a bit about yourself. Tell us about Realty Quant, and then I want to dive into the data side, the real estate side. But uh, tell us a bit about your background and the company. Yes, uh, absolutely. So I'm Eastern European. I came to the States at 22. I came here for my master's. So I studied financial engineering in New York City. And I used to work in finance for about for about a decade, and I transitioned to being a full-time investor in the, the past uh, couple of years. Um, so I've been doing that. And my company, Realty Quant, is really a data analytics, education, and um, kind of technology platform. Got it, got it. And how long has Realty Quant been uh, up and running? Realty Quant's been, I would say... I've been focusing on that the most in the past one year, even even less. I've had like bits and pieces. Realty Coin is really the product of kind of my own investment, own investment um, kind of effort. So I would say I've had like many of the pieces to it for probably like as many as two, three years back. But I've kept I kept most of them in house. So I would write like my own like scripts. And um, let's say like Python scripts for some of your audience if, audience, if they're acquainted, and I would just write like all these codes and have like thousands of lines of code to, to find deals, to find markets, you know, things like that. And kind of like the models started building on top of each other. And then I've started more recently in the past one year, releasing some of them as products out, out for other investors to use. Got it. That, so you have, you have something special there. You have a special, special viewpoint and you know, before we hopped on, I was thinking about kind of Realty Quant and the fact that you are an active real estate investor and thinking about that through the lens of what I do on a daily basis, what our company does, Lima One Capital on the day job. And let me ask this, would you say that your investment philosophy is void of emotion? Is it just the numbers have to pan out in the algorithm and you know, if, if that can be a yes or no question, maybe it can, maybe it can't. But then really talk to me, give me a peek under the hood of kind of what data points you're looking at, how you're scraping those data points. Uh, how's everything work? Yeah, this is a great question. Um, so if it's a yes or no, I would say no. <laughs> so, okay. so definitely not devoid of emotion. Uh, one kind of, uh, I, I do review like ODUs afterwards manually and so forth as well. But just like to give a, a background, what is data-driven real estate investing? It's basically, let's say for a person like me coming out of finance, it's basically trading the private real estate market kind of like stocks. 
and trying to proxy and get as close as po- possible to if it was a public market, which it's not. And there are like lots of advantages to that, obviously, and like to capture like all that inefficiency that is there. But try to build your own investment systems to the to a level that as close as possible you trade like stocks. And what that really means is like several things. So I can give example of what to me is data driven investing. It's um, if we take on market. You know, most investors are interested in off-market uh, listings and deals, of course. But if we take just for the completeness on-market, that would kind of underwrite all on-market data, in either commercial or residential, end-to-end. So you have like the full underwriting, you have like all your cap rates, uh, cash on cash returns for your financing terms and so forth. And um, so then you have some off-market modeling and collecting of data. So let's say I would... Um, scrape like multiple like off-market commercial deals off um, Facebook and other social media. And then kind of those are harder to automatically underwrite in an automated way, but kind of has have this data and then combine it with maybe like an acquisitions analyst who would, would, would underwrite those. So that's kind of has uh, is another thing. So off-market commercial modeling, it's actually get, gets very interesting and there is a methodology to for modeling commercial multifamily, which I developed at my firm, which is utilizes rental listings data and sort of does a preliminary income expense sheet analysis of a property and can do it at scale for like any market in the country and so forth. And it's a very good tool. And that's that's one thing I've been using as well. And then another component of this real investing is going to have statistical regression analysis for markets. To derive like the best appreciation, kind of running like appreciation forecasts in a very rigorous way, rather than just you know picking like fundamentals that drive values supposedly, but doing it like a rigor, rigorous regression, and as, in, as part of that, measuring downside risk is another one. So downside risk that's like very, I feel like in the real estate industry, it's not commonly used, and it's also the industry where I think it's the easiest one to use. So it's the easiest one of the easiest things to measure downside risk because it's a very fundamental asset. It's driven by population, income, housing, supply, so one can measure that. So this is another piece. Automated valuation models, I would say a fourth one. So things like zero's estimate and so forth, we all, with all the caveats of that and limitations and so forth. But in highly liquid markets, that has helped me discover deals like places like upstate New York. And you can run your own AVM and try to find like, properties that are like very, very mispriced. And it happens to be sometimes it's rare, but that's, that helps you to detect it. And then um, using like some natural language processing for textual classification for various things. So one would be condition, property conditions, so sort of be it on market or off market properties doing textual classification, which is really a machine learning method there or various machine learning methods to actually classify and be able to process through your listings and automate automated underwrite them in a more efficient way. And then um, another thing would be what something about a company in New York called Foxy AI do like, I'm, I don't do it myself. It's image, image classification and condition scoring for images. This is another important component for um, data-driven investing because if you are able to actually go through all real estate images in an automated manner, well, um, that can save you time, time and you don't need like, you know, having like an analyst to do that. Then they can look at like the already underwritten deals and sort of do deeper, deeper dive into them. But, um, but again, like this is kind of a long-winded answer, like going through like some of the different topics. But really like to your question, um, is it... Removing emotion of investing, no, it doesn't. 
In fact, I've been working right now on hiring an acquisitions analyst because the manual component is still there, but it just helps you to scale a little more and have more insights and have more preliminary underwriting than you would otherwise have. No, that makes complete sense. There's, you know, it, it just technology isn't to the point where you can fully remove the human touch on on most things. So that makes sense. One thing you talked about was it the downside analysis, right? So, so talk to me more about that. I think you know the masses. You know, everybody. If you look at stock market since inception, if you look at American real estate value over the last hundred years. Like up and to the right, but we know that there have been some significant and elongated downturns. Uh, so I'm curious about that because, yeah, we're always looking kind of forward flow. What are the metrics for growth in this market? You know, is Amazon moving in? What's going on? But it's not often that you hear kind of the more risk side approach on it. So what what goes into projecting potential downside? I agree. I agree. And this is a, actually, this is a great question. Um, yeah, we often hear about all the appreciation predictors, right? And there isn't like a, um, there isn't like a risk management side so much, I feel. And, and so, so yeah, so what I, what I myself did, so at, um, so at Realty Quant at the beginning of COVID, so I was like super concerned if, you know, like what if real estate takes a downturn, you know, are we at the peak, you know, like kind of the usual concern that many people have. And, um, and so I looked up like different studies and like, so one thing that inspired me, it comes from finance. Um, it's a study called measuring the bubble by Hussman investment trust. So this is one thing that I looked up and sort of has like different ratios and different metrics to try to see like how much, uh, you know, the stock market is overvalued and admittedly it's like way harder to arguably, so it's, it's way harder to do it in the stock market because, um, you know, as maybe some of your audience knows, especially in recent years, the stock, the S&P 500 or the main index in the stock market is very driven by the top five technology companies and some other technology companies and technology companies there. It's very hard to have a valuation there, right? So you don't, yeah. you don't know what they should be worth. So, so I don't have, for example, this analysis for the stock market. And <laughs> that's actually one reason why I don't own any stocks now, because I feel like if you don't know valuation, you are actually not a professional investor. You're not like, to the level of what Warren, Warren Buffett was in the 80s or something like that, because you, you're you just constantly guessing where the market is. And and I can be guessing if yeah. the stock market is overvalued or not, but they don't actually know, and they don't have exact measurements. And that and so the same effort in real estate. So that's like one thing that inspired me, Hussman Investment Trust, um, John Hussman, PhD uh, in finance, I think, is like who heads that hedge fund. He has some studies. Then I looked up, for some of your audience who know Neil Bauer, he uses a vendor called Local Market Monitor for some market data, and that's run by Ingo Windsor. Ingo Windsor was in 2005 and 2006 on CNN and was sharing the certain markets in California and um, California and, and Florida primarily. He was focusing where dangerously overvalued. And that was kind of two years ahead of the actually the, um, the downturn that happened in 2007. And so, and he was doing what he was doing is like just simple price income ratios and kind of derived from that. And so that was able actually to predict, you know, some of the overvaluation at that time quite well. Um, and, and yeah, so I, so I went on to do a similar, similar study on my end. So I just, my predicted variable was the declines in different states and different counties after the global financial crisis. 
And so I went on like what's what predicted that the best. I looked at foreclosure rates. I looked at like various different metrics. I looked at like price volatility, like risk adjusted returns in different regions and things like that. And they weren't very predictive. And what actually like seemed to work the very best is, well, it's really real estate prices are driven by income, population and housing supply, broadly speaking. And so if you take a predicted price of those three, like via regression or whichever method, a predicted price of those three fundamentals, and then if you look at deviation versus that predicted price on some historical window, that is actually working, which is a if you think about it, it's a really simple thing on one side, and that works really well. And so, so I started first with, I just took price income ratios in all different regions. I took them over a moving average 20-year time window. And then um, I took, like, when has been the peak in each different uh, market, like county, state, can be done at zip code, etc. you know, the peak um, of the prices. And where was this deviation from, Essentially, we can say price income ratios, it's affordability, right? So it's like mm-hmm. what home prices are times the personal income in our region. And so these kind of deviations in affordability, where they were in the different regions at the peak of the global financial crisis, and then how that correlated to the subsequent declines in the same regions, right? And so, and so this study showed an like 85% correlation at the state level to the subsequent actual decline. So it was very strong. So I had seen like, obviously this is not something I have invented. I have seen such studies like done by Bloomberg economics and so forth, but they never knew like a sense of actual, the actual predictive power of it. And that I feel was my value at the time. And then I tested it at the, the county level. And that was like about 75%, kind of way worse, you know, not so strong correlation at the county level, but still, still high. And so, and so I took that and like, I thought, okay, well, that's making me comfortable. I did with like different methodologies, like, like I mentioned, incorporating population and housing supply, kind of ratio based, regression based, like several different ways. And then I, um, and kind of like I started tracking this and like computing, okay, where is it now? You know, so I started at the beginning of COVID. And the, the, the interesting thing is at the beginning of COVID, actually, um, U.S. real estate was fairly valued. And that was on different, if you will, like, you know, academics or like analysts who, who, who track that. There aren't too many, but there, there is, a, I think, a, um, a study at Florida Atlantic University, and then there is um, Bloomberg Economics, which I mentioned for countries. And so Bloomberg Economics was saying, like, since 2019, U.S. real estate is fairly valued, and then they released it in the first quarter of 2021, and it was still fairly valued, broadly speaking. But then, and that was kind of aligned with what I was seeing as well. Okay, it's like around 100%, actually. It's quite interesting. Even though so many people for many years say it's overvalued, but it right. was not at the time. And so, and so I went to, um, like, yeah, and, and actually there was an, an exception. So the big exception was the state of Idaho, which was like 25%, 25% overvalued. Um, and Boise, the Boise, um, if some of your audience may have heard, like this market cycle, Boise is the best performing city in America in price appreciation. Yeah. So it really appreciates, really booming, you know, it does really well, but it's also overvalued. Um, it's, um, so it happens, uh, so Boise was like a 33%, and that's already like around like March 2020 or so, so forth, uh, like around the time, like the end of first quarter of 2020. Yeah. And, um, and yeah, and so I kept tracking them like quarterly, and so it's can they stay the same. So let's say like I'm looking at, let's say, Florida um, and Texas, and, and I have this study for like 2,700 U.S. counties. 
you know. And so I track them like every quarter. And let's say Florida and Texas stay in like 8 to 10% slightly overvalued range, kind of fairly valued, basically. You know, they're strong. I mean, there are various markets in there, obviously, but generally very strong states with many strong markets in them. And, um, and so they were like very consistent for four years, 8 to 10%. And uh, a few Western markets like Arizona and Colorado, perhaps like 13 to 16%, something like that, kind of a little bit more overvalued. And then Idaho, it's 25% and, and that. Um, and, and then, um, okay, so that's where it was. And at the second quarter and third quarter of 2021, this, this changed. And I came out at my webinar and I said, okay, it looks like this is the first indication of a real estate bubble because everybody was really happy about inflation. Kind of, okay, we're having inflation. Inflation helps hard assets and that. But then again, that's not to scare people off. It's just like first indication in the sense, and what I mean by that, just in the sense of, um, okay, if we have Florida and Texas at 8 to 10% consistently quarter after quarter for four years, well, suddenly they doubled to like 17, 18%. And Idaho, which was at 25, went to 47. And Arizona, which was at like, yeah, Arizona, which was at like 16, went to like 30, 31. And so kind of valuations kind of doubled. The reason for that is not complex at all. We have seen it firsthand. It's that asset inflation was very high, but some of the fundamentals inflation like income did not catch up. An example of that would be Arizona prices in the first half of last year grew by 17%, but income grew by just 1%. So that's kind of what drives this. Again, like this is not being bearish on, um, on those markets because they, they actually have the highest appreciation forecast in my model as well if we stay under the same cycle. And that is actually a very interesting concept, like perhaps like for your audience, because if a market is overvalued, that's not, uh, it's not like you're, you're predicting less appreciation for it. Um, it's quite the contrary, actually. If it's like so much overvalued, it probably has very strong trend, very strong momentum. That's expected to continue by virtually any statistical model you can use out there, be it ARIMA, Facebook Profit, or I would say, or like um, exponential triple smoothing. Those are kind of like three methods one can use to forecast prices, let's say. So let's say by whichever one one would use, it's going gonna to be, it's going to show significant growth in, in Arizona. And it's going to show significant growth in Idaho, even if Idaho is, um, you know, I would say overvalued. But again, the moment that's because we're under the same market cycle, and real estate is trend-driven. So how we test if it's trend-driven, there's something called like autocorrelation, autocorrelation test. So you test if last year price growth correlates to this year price growth. And in most US regions, it's very high. In Alaska was an exception. Like Alaska has like negative autocorrelation. So there's like no rhyme or reason there. It doesn't make sense, right? It's not like, let's say it's if last year good performance predicts a not good one this year, right? Something right, like that. Yeah. But generally, it's not the case. So if we take something like Florida, autocorrelation was like 77% and, and that. So, so this kind of like, so there's trends. So there's trends. So while things are booming and going well, like now with inflation, I'm not coming out saying, oh, I'm negative on the Western market. They're going to do really well. You just one needs to have simultaneously be aware of the downside risk that one simultaneously carries with this right. same upside that you're capturing. And so this, um, this is kind of the analysis there. And then just becomes a question of, do you want to go now? How do you pick markets? Let's say based on this, right? So you can go in the Western markets still or and invest, but if you're aware of the valuation, you can kind of be tracking and trying, okay, maybe taking a higher risk and trying to exit within two years or whichever, whichever timing you think is going to be right. Because timing is uncertain, obviously. And 
and, and so that's a, or you can go in underwater markets if you're super risk averse. And and actually, what happened in, during the global financial crisis in undervalued states is very interesting because there were ten, 10 states at the time, including Texas, which were undervalued. So negative valuation metrics in the same analysis. And so they um, the average, the drop that they had was four percent on average. So, for example, Texas drop was also 4%. And that's very interesting because the, the median income drop in the U.S. at the time was 4%. So, if you're saying like kind of price normalized by income terms, and it's not only income that drives it, but, but let's say as an approximation, price normalized by income terms actually didn't drop. So, it's kind of like civil valuation stayed the same. It's very interesting. So, that's kind of you have the big... Uh, the global financial crisis where, you know, places like California, Arizona, Nevada, and Florida dropped 40 to 60%. But nevertheless, the undervalued states, they they stay the same kind of valuation terms. And that is very, very interesting. And so this is, this is telling me, okay, that seems to work in a way that, okay, why does it work so well? It's because real estate is so fundamental. I guess that's my only explanation. And it's kind of driven by those fundamentals and, and yeah. Yeah, that's super interesting. So until you clarified it towards the end, when I heard overvalued, I, I my immediate reaction was like, no, bad, not good, but it's fine as long as, like you said, the current market conditions and assumptions stay true. And then whenever kind of a wrench gets thrown into one of those, then you have to go back to the drawing board. So it's it seems to be a pretty good to dumbing it down for my simple brain, right? It seems to be a good risk reward kind of measure, right? Yeah, I agree. I agree. Yes, it's a risk reward thing. It doesn't predict your appreciation. I always feel like if you say something like over, it's if like one would expect that something undervalued, it's very, it just depends relative to what? It's relative to fundamentals, but it doesn't, yeah. that's being undervalued relative to fundamentals Interestingly enough, it just doesn't drive more growth because it can stay undervalued for really long, actually. It's quite interesting. And like many of the undervalued um, markets, well, they they often are depressed. And so they I'm not predicting that they appreciate, but, mm-hmm. but they nevertheless do have very low downside risk. And that's something interesting because like there are many people I have heard, um, you know, sometimes on LinkedIn, they may say something like, oh, buy Houston assets or something like that. Like buy this kind of like, strong markets, assets, and you're going to be okay. Well, that's not how downside risk works because downside risk derives from kind of an irrational overvaluation relative to fundamentals. That's at least what I see. It doesn't derive from simply better risk-adjusted returns like price relative to volatility even because I, I tested that. It doesn't derive even from, oh, these markets are more volatile or less volatile. Neither, even that doesn't correlate well. And so it really derives from like, well, when there's kind of an irrational component and well, where is it most likely to happen? Often in strong markets. So that is actually the case. Now there, there are some exceptions or some interesting um, cases there. So for example, Denver, Colorado at the beginning of COVID was one of the most best performing cities. It was fairly valued. It was like top five price performance and its valuation in, at least in my model was at 0% was and it went a little bit, I think, at like 12% kind of overvalued then with inflation and so forth. But it doesn't look, it doesn't look that bad. And so it was actually fairly valued and it had done really well. Then there can be, uh, if we take places like the state of Indiana. The state of Indiana was undervalued and it, kind of like those mid-range markets that 
intuitively investors know that um, are not depressed. It's not okay. It's not like the Northeast, you know, really depressed that nobody wants to invest in a way. But it is also, I mean, except around some big cities, but broader is a broader region. But it is. Um, you know, it had solid depreciation in Indiana over its state and certain markets did really well, but also was undervalued. And, and now it is, let's say, fairly valued. So that would be kind of like an example of like what you said, the kind of like risk, risk, uh, reward trade off and like deciding where do you want to go. So, and so one can say, OK, you want to go in this kind of medium up medium strong medium solid performance really solid performance but not like super strong as in the western markets and southern markets but on the other hand it's under under to fairly valued and so you can kind of measure your your race and really this question is much more relevant towards the end of the market cycle and it wouldn't so much matter you know at another time you would only be looking at appreciation predictors and you would be aware of your valuation metric let's say what it is but it's not going to be so so important and just starts to matter more and more towards the end of the cycle and um, and that. But yeah, it's not an appreciation predictor. Your appreciation predictors are the same ones that like every syndicator uses. That every but, well, but I can talk to that by the way. If you go on like the fundamentals and you choose, let's say, population growth, job growth, like different things, and um, you try to kind of infer and you buy your pick your market based on that. And if you try to infer appreciation. Essentially, you're kind of inferring appreciation. Now, there's all kinds of other factors since you, you like your properties or just like qualitatively the markets and so forth. But purely, let's say you're trying to infer appreciation. And so when you do this, I did actually a study of that. So I took population growth, income growth, housing supply, change, and I tried to predict those. And then of those, I predicted the prices. And then on the other hand, I did a, another study where I only took the historical prices and just predicted the prices themselves. And so the second model had a five times smaller error. Actually, it actually forecasts prices really well. If you take something like the state level, while we're in the same trend, like it was 2018, 2019, the error in the price prediction was only 1.4%. So one is able to forecast prices too, which is, I'm not a fan of forecasting price, to be honest. I'm like yeah. much more like with this kind of like downside risk, kind of risk management side. Mm -hmm. But but again, because it's, because I mean, when the trend deviates and changes, then it's all going to break, like your model is going to break. But while we are in the same trend, I was had like 1.4% error in 2018 and 2019, roughly speaking. But if you go the, what they call kind of the syndicator approach or like investment management investor approach of actually doing the fundamentals, which is like a nice narrative to share with your investors and so forth, the error was 7%, so way, way bigger. So like 7% yeah. of the price is kind of big. And so it's quite interesting. So actually that's like something that I spoke like to some uh, syndicators or like just investors that I know and like I tell them, okay, it's actually, if you just go and looking at the historical prices, because real estate is so trend driven, you would predict your short term, let's say one year ahead appreciation better. And so yeah. that's kind of like as far as appreciation forecasting, but the yeah, downside risk is um, very, it's like fundamentals, deviation from fundamentals, uh, have like very, very strong correlation, very strong correlation. Look, my my goal with this podcast is to have people on here who are smarter than me, and uh, I've won on this episode, Stefan. Oh, you, thank you, dude. Okay. You are, you are I'm not brilliant. sure about that one. Oh, sure you're, you're humble too, so you you get two points for that, my friend. So tell people if they want to learn more about Realty Quant, where do they go? Um, tell us. 
Yeah, so yeah, realticon.com really is the best way to reach to me. Uh, we have market data there, and I've been working on a few other products like commercial multifamily lead generation and, and some others. So realticon.com, that's really the best way. They can also find me on LinkedIn. Beautiful, beautiful. Stefan Svetkov, I can't thank you enough. I, I've thoroughly enjoyed this. You, uh, I have a little scratch pad full of notes over here, and I'm going to be uh, probably combing back through this episode again to fill in the gaps of what I missed. Uh, this is a really great education and a novel way of uh, kind of viewing real estate. I'm a fan of anything that we can take from kind of the emotions to the numbers side of it. And, you know, certainly have to have that human element in there, but what you're doing is, uh, is quite wonderful really on the real estate side. Um, great approach. So thank you so much for joining. Thank you as well. Thanks everybody for listening. Take care. Are you a real estate investor looking for the right lender that can finance all your deals and help you scale? Lima One Capital has the best suite of loan products in the industry, bar none. Whether that's fix and flips, fix and holds, building new construction, or buying rental properties, they have incredible financing solutions for it all. A reliable, common sense lender is one of the most important parts of your investment team. And that's exactly what you get with Lima One. Let Lima One Capital show you how they've helped thousands of real estate investors scale and increase their wealth. Check out LimaOne.com or call 800-259-0595 to speak with a consultant in preparation for your next project. Thank you for joining us today on the Real Estate of Things podcast. Subscribe and tune in weekly for new content from the industry's best while we continue to unpack the nuances of this dynamic market. Follow us across social media for additional insights and analysis on the topics covered in each episode. And remember to rate, review, and share the show.